0: Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Moet Katan, daf Chavdimo, page 23. Not a particularly long daf today, um, and we're still in the throes of all the halachot of mourning. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, some of the halachot of Shabbat that is discussed here, right? Whether or not we mourn actually on Shabbat. And the discussion begins actually with a very interesting brisa, tena revan. So somebody who's in mourning, the first week of their period of mourning, they don't go out of the opening of their house, meaning they basically stay inside their house. During the second week, he can go out, but he doesn't sit in his usual place in uh, in the Beit Kasset. During the third week, he can go in his usual place, but he doesn't speak. And by the fourth week, he is like everybody. Now, that doesn't take us to the 30-day period. And I think what's interesting here is we're sort of seeing another sort of time period being put onto the mourner that we haven't seen previously of the seven and the 30. Um, In terms of what we do today, uh, we do know that many people during their uh, mourning period, they do actually change their place of seating in the uh, Beit Knesset. But people do actually go to shul even that first week. And in fact, there's a special way that we greet people when they come into the shul for the first time. Um, Rabbi Yehuda, Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, So Rabbi Yehuda says, you don't need even to say anything about this first week because the first week people are coming into his house, right, basically to console him. It's still the week of Shiva. So Rabbi Huda basically pushes everything off. And to me, this makes a little bit more sense because then this really falls more within the 30 day time period, right? The second week, you don't go outside of your house. The third week, you can go out, but don't sit in your seat. The fourth week, you can sit in your seat, but you don't um, speak. Again, this makes more sense to me because by the fifth week, you should presumably be past your 50, your 30 days, excuse me. Um, and so then it sort of makes sense that maybe you're going a little bit more uh, back to normal. So it, But it's interesting to me that the first way that morning and Shabbat is described is very much the social aspect of Shabbat, right? It's not around, you know, do you partake in the meals? What about the torn clothing? Like that? It's all going to come later. But the way the Gemara first introduces it is with a brysa that really, I think, deals with sort of the social aspect of Shabbat. And I think it tells us something about how it was understood how many people spend their time on Shabbat, right? That there was sort of a convening and a communal aspect to Shabbat. And that needs to be sort of, you know, uh, you take a step back when you're in this period of mourning. And then on Amidbet, the the discussion... Uh, well, it starts again on the bottom of Amud Aleph. Um, but on Amud, Be- uh, they, you know, they say the following here. Right, it was taught, basically it was taught, Shabbat counts as one of the days of mourning and doesn't interrupt the mourning period. So in other words, it's counted as one of the seven, right? right the residents of Judea and the residents of the Galil, Hani Amri, they would say, Yesh Abelut Shabbat, but honey, Amri, Ave Abelut Shabbat. So here we see something that's also interesting. Here is sort of the first time that in our whole discussion, we see of anything with Aveilut, sort of regional differences, right? So they don't say who's who, but they say one of those areas, right? Either the Judea or the Daliel said there is Aveilut on Shabbat. And one said there was not Aveilut on Shabbat. Right. And it's also interesting to me that it's not until we get to the section on Shabbat that we finally see that there's sort of like difference amongst where people live. Right. Everything else up until now, as it's been presented, it's like, OK, you have to cover your face, you have to tear your clothes, you have to this, you have to that. But there's no discussion that it's different from place to place. I, I find it interesting that for Shabbat it is. And again, I think that speaks to something about its communal aspect, that in other words, different places will sort of uh, you know, look at the mourner differently or how the mourner could participate based on maybe where they live or maybe what that community was like. So the ones who say that there's some mourning on Shabbat, that is because that braisa that we just learned before says it's a lot, it counts as one of the seven days. So if it counts as one of the seven days, then you obviously need to be mourning. And one who says that it that it doesn't count because it says a not right? Because it's it's taught that Chavez doesn't does not interrupt the morning period. And then they go on to discuss this uh, a little bit more and, and sort of to understand uh, uh, you know, how does this work? Do they have braces that can prove this or not prove these two different um, these two different opinions? Um, and then from there, they start to get into, uh, you know, uh, then tomorrow we'll see a little bit more. Um, we'll see a little bit more about Shabbat itself. Um, But the only other thing I want to point out is that there's also at the end, also another discussion about sort of not eating in a room with a dead body there as well. So a few things. One is, first of all, none of these halakhod are based on any text, which is a theme that we've continued to talk about, right? This to me is the first time where I think sort of the community piece of mourning is very much acknowledged. And I think it's done through the experience of what Shabbat is supposed to be like. Um, And lastly, this is the first time where we see regional difference, right? That in one area, maybe mourning was done one way, and in one area, mourning may have been done another way. Um, And I think this speaks to that there is a piece of mourning, like all of these things together, that are sort of custom, right? as opposed to, this is not to erase, this is not based on the actual text itself. But Anne, as you pointed out yesterday, it's interesting to see that really pretty much Jews from all denominations, all walks of life, sort of keep some piece of mourning in a way that I don't think is true with other areas of Jewish law, where you'll see a lot more, I think, diversity sometimes of practice. Whereas like when it comes to like sitting Shiva, sitting Shiva, maybe you do it for more days, less days, but, you know, but the 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 bones of it pretty much, maybe that's a bad pun, okay, but the <laughs> are pretty much the same, you know, from Jew to Jew, which is pretty amazing, considering that it's not, you know, it's not Torah-based ritual.
1: So I have three comments to make. <clears throat> the first, I think, is the last point. I know we're supposed to say things in the order that we respond to the order of the questions, but let's take it from the end. Um... It was it's been noted that Yitzhak Herzog, the president of Israel, Bouji Herzog, was just in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. It was a big deal. The first time Hatikva played there, meaning like it was part of the Abraham Accords and so on. And he was there with his, for lack of a better nickname, his Shloshim beard, right? Meaning his mother passed away. And he, as far as I know, he's not considered from in a standard Dati kind of way. But he continued this practice, you know, even unto this very important, high dignitary kind of meeting, international meeting. And I think that speaks to exactly just how much of a hold we care about these mourning practices. I think also the fact that the UAE is religious makes it a little bit easier. He didn't, you know, have to present himself in a in a different kind of way, let's say. He didn't have to present as if he wasn't in mourning, let's say. But um, I think that speaks to, again, the the phenomenon being quite widespread and and really, you know, dear to people. That's point one. Point two, I wanted to note that the business of minhag and being different in different places should remind us all of Masachim, the fourth parak, the Mishnah, where it talks about, you know, do you keep the practices of this place or of that place? There's a recognition that minhag changes from place to place. And I think that that's an important component of the mourning practices, is that they, some of them anyway, are at the level of midhag, as opposed to at the level of, of what? Of halakha. Meaning, none of this is doraita really. Very little of this is doraita, As you say, it's not from sukim, and it's not the standard stricture of of halakha. So then to say that, you know, it's midhag and it differs from place to place should resonate, because that's exactly what we know that midhag does. Um, and lastly, which was my first thought as you began speaking or early early on your, th- your presentation, is that this is all very formal. For all that it's minhag as opposed to strict halacha, it's still a very regimented way to, how do you handle mourning and Shabbat and so on with whatever machlok and with whatever different practices as compared to a discussion. And I, I'm not saying I would have expected it, but I'm just acknowledging that this is not what's taking place in the dafir to say, you know, Your feelings of of Avelut, you know, I assume for many people, the feelings of Avelut do not change from Friday to Saturday to Sunday, right? Over the course of those days that have a Shabbat in between. It's not like you say like, oh, it's Shabbat. So now I'm no longer sad. But by no longer having the trappings of the sadness, of the the formal acts of Avelut, it does, I think, you know, it's an interesting comment that like, this is what we're going to do formally independent of how you actually feel. And I'm not sure yet what to make of that, you know, in terms of, I don't know, long-term comment on people's emotions or something like that. I'm, I'm not saying that there is such a thing going on here. I think that part of mourning has to be formalized because that emotional piece is going to kick in or not as the
0: case may be independent of the formal strictures. I, I think that is a good point, right? Like there's a piece of like the formal structure and then sort of the custom piece as well. Um, and uh, I, I think that's a fair point.
1: Okay, I'm now gonna tackle the middle, right? meaning you're in you took the top of the daf and then towards the bottom or certainly onto Ahmed ben, I'm now still uh, going back to Aleph. It's kind of its own subtopic within Tatar the rabbis taught "Kol Shloshim Yom lini suin. So you have 30 days, right? The 30 days of Shloshim. Uh you Kol shloshim Yom lini Suin." you don't have there's no marriage. You can't get married. Let's say this the the text is very terse. Koshloshim yom lini Suin." Well, what that means is all 30 days are not are are kept as the 30 days and are not yet for marriage, meaning if one's wife died let's say, So this, of course, is an interesting contradiction, right? It begins saying the 30, the 30 days you can't marry, and then it says if your wife died, you can't get married to another wife until after all three regalim pass, meaning you get a full year, it's not a full year of a calendar year necessarily, depending on the month, but it's a full year of regalim passing, before you can marry again. And the commentaries talk about why this might be, right? Is it because, uh, you know, you want to give him time to forget the first wife? Is it to make sure that he's not comparing them? Is it to make sure that he's not kicking up the old wife's, you know, practice in the new wife's face, right? There's a lot of interesting discussion over what really, I think, amounts to the psychology and dynamic between the first and second marriages, um, specifically where, where the you know, where it's because of a death of the first partner. Um, and so, again, the question I have, the initial question is, why 30 days versus three regalim? So Rabbi Huda says, as long as the first and second festivals have passed, then you, you can't get married between the first and second happening. But then... You still could get married before the third one happened. So, depending on when this happened, from the time of year, this could be a long time or a short time. Meaning, if you're talking about Pesach and Shavuot, then you could get married, you know, right away. You know, seven weeks later, whatever. If it's Sukkot to Pesach, you know, then that's a long time. And by the way, then you enter the whole period of Sphira, and you're not supposed to get married then either. So, it, it gets complicated. Over, it's not a, it's not a standard of time, really. It, it's not, it's not a count of days. It's more a matter, I would say, if anything, again, of psychology of feeling the season change or something like that. Okay. And then the Gemara goes on to talk about what about kids? The Im Elo Banim. If he doesn't have children from the first wife who has now died, Mutar Lisa La Alter, then he can get married immediately. He does not have to wait. Mishum Bitul Piria rivia, Because so he's not um, ignoring or neglecting. The mitzvah of puravu, right? Being fruitful and multiply. banim And then the Gemara goes on to say, and what if he's got young children? If he has young children, mutar alisa then he can still marry immediately. parnasatan Because she is, you know, she, the second wife then, would be there also to take care of them, right? Meaning the concern of young children being left motherless, Um it's not a comment on their emotional state either, right? It's a, if anything, it's a comment on the father's ability to to care for them, not in the most complimentary way, but, you know, it's also certainly a need. I, I think this is, I would say it's a very, very difficult topic when it's the reality. And sadly, we all know of cases where it's been the reality and where an immediate marriage kind of makes sense and people are kind of pleased for the family as a whole, Nobody is thinking that the first wife is being ignored or forgotten or something like that. Then we've got, you know, and I like when this happens. We have a narrative case to illustrate the the, the theoretical halacha. So there is a kohen whose name was Yosef, and his wife died. And he says to her sister when they're at the cemetery, "Go and take care of your sister's children." Meaning that's kind of like, you know, the most subtle way to say, I'd like to take you to be my wife in her place, right? It's a little bit strange, especially because we've got a whole concern about not marrying your, you know, the sibling of your spouse. But okay, whatever. But they didn't actually sleep together for a long time, which is presumably appropriate, right? Meaning she's taking care of the children, but that doesn't mean that they themselves now have a spousal dynamic when before they had been brother and sister-in-law. And then the Gemara kind of punctures everything I've just said. What does it mean that they did not sleep together for a long time? Papa So he goes back to the the case that we had at the beginning as a matter of determining this time. It says, how long is a, third, a long time? 30 days. So I think in our time frame, 30 days for 30 days to take on your your widow your how do we say this your dead spouse's sibling as a partner is not a long time but i understand again there's a very practical concern about caring for the children nowadays again i think we'd have a whole a whole different kind of concern because of doesn't it smack of the RIOT, if nothing else but leaving that aside i i find it Sadly entertaining that a very long time in this context is determined to be 30 days.
0: Uh, look, I think marriage was practical, you know, like women, you got married so woman could run your house and it's not romantic. <laughs> you know, it's a little sexist. We're seeing it on the depth. I think it reflects, you know, what life was actually like um, and the possibility of the idea that a man was going to raise children on his own. It's not really part of the culture. You know, you got married quickly and we're seeing that, uh, you know, and maybe we just have to be grateful that that's really not the world that we live in today.
1: Indeed. That's our doc discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this doc. Thank you to Rabineet Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.